0: Hi there. We're back. Seems like forever. I want to thank you all, first of all, for all the emails you sent and all the love I got after Bowie suddenly passed away. She was special to this little dish. She was, she's on the, on the page. And as I know, as you know, we were very close and it was a very sudden and very strange event watching your own, Little dog, have a heart attack. Not not a great day in my life or night. And thank you for being patient, letting me take an extra week just to kind of absorb that and deal with it and try and rebalance. Chris, too, loved her terribly. And But thank you. That's all I want to say. Thank you for letting me take the time. Thank you for caring. Thank you for being the best readership, listenership, I can imagine ever having you are. I, I am so grateful, and that's 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 my theme right now: gratitude for you and for this little experiment. We're gonna keep going, and we have a phenomenal season lined up of the dishcast Cast. Coming up, just a few, we have Predy de who I've never had on the dishcast Cast before, and his new book, "How Elites Aid the Social Justice Movement." Lior Sapir, who's done amazing work in, in uncovering and understanding the shifts and changes in the treatment of children with gender dysphoria over the last uh, decade or so, knows more about it than almost anyone I know and has written, written about it with a, a level of compassion and I think moderation, that's a model for discussion of the subject. And Ian Baruma, an old friend of mine, former editor of the New York Review of Books, who's coming on to talk about The Collaborators, his new book, Three Stories of Deception and Survival in World War II. All really fantastically interesting and smart people. And speaking of which, of whom, we have back a rare return to the discast, but he's absolutely indefatigable and irrepressible. And he's written a book that is well worth discussing and engaging. Um, It's Sora Bamari, who is the founder and editor of Compact, a radical American journal, one that seemed to be upending all ideas of conventional right and left in America, running some really interesting and challenging different pieces. It's definitely not run-of-the-mill stuff. It's not and it's well worth looking at. And he's also contributing out of the American Conservative and he spent nearly a decade at News Corp as the op-ed editor of the New York Post and as a columnist and editor of the Wall Street Journal Opinion Pages in New York and London. His new book, which we'll get into today, is called Tyranny Incorporated, Tyranny Inc. How Private Power Crushed American Liberty and What to Do About It. So thank you so much for coming on again.
1: Andrew, I'm so grateful you have me back. I know that's a rare thing. Well, so.
0: ideas double. You're doing you're doing interesting stuff, and and I, I'm always interested in, in in people who are stirring up either the right or the left. Tell us briefly because we've had you on before, but your life story is a fascinating one. Just give us a brief synopsis of of, of your life up till now in three I minutes. Know. Okay, just give us a quick rundown oh. because. The t- sheer details are,
1: are are fascinating in, the, in and of themselves. Yes. And I would recommend for, for listeners who haven't, to, if you want the full story, listen to the earlier uh, Dishcast episode in which we mostly talked about uh, my life. But the short version is I was born and raised in Tehran, Iran, to a kind of educated, upper middle class family, immigrated to the United States with just my mother when I was 13, about to turn 14 landed in, of all places, Logan, Utah, because you go where you have relatives. And in my case, the relatives who helped us clinch our family preference program visas, aka chain migration, had settled in northern Utah. So that's where you, we went. And so that's where I went to high school and even part of college. Ideologically, you know, I was an atheist before I had left the Islamic Republic. Became a kind of Nietzsche head in high school, which is quite typical. It all this all might sound exotic, but I actually think the the story is pretty. It, it, it's actually all too ordinary in a kind of an American intellectual journey. So I became a Nietzsche head in in high school, which led to being a Trotskyist in college, or maybe in high school and college. I then. Gradually became much more of a conventional conservative or conventional liberal conservatives, I should say, in the kind of American mold. I went to work for The Wall Street Journal uh, out of law school, never practiced law and was on the opinion page. There was shipped off to London. Uh, And then around 2015, 16, things got interesting. For one thing, I was received into the Catholic Church. That's a long story. I've written a memoir as to why. And then we discussed it with Andrew on my first appearance on this show. And simultaneously, my brand of conservatism became more populist. I initially resisted the Trump phenomenon, like many of my colleagues at the Journal. But over time, I was I I became convinced that what the country needs is a more populist, less libertarian, party of the right and Trump promised to take us there. And that's basically, I mean, roughly speaking, that's where I am. I'm I'm a man of the right, but my economic opinions are quite, quite, you could say, progressive. You could even say left. I mean, there's very little daylight on many economic issues between me and, say, Senator Liz Warren. how so, does that? I mean, I,
0: I think this right-left stuff is kind of irrelevant at this point, or at least it can yeah. tell, doesn't. It obscures more than it reveals. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but this book is not a right-wing book. I mean, this this is a, this is a this is a real left-left-wing screed, really, against contemporary capitalist societies, market capitalist societies in a, in in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a regime that you would call neoliberalism. And and others have called it neoliberalism. I want to start with just some specifics about that because you raise some really hair-raising stories and, and anecdotes, as well as different sectors in which you think the private sector has become has gotten out of control and is essentially dictating people's lives in ways that we might call tyrannical. So run run us through a few of those examples because I think it helps set the stage for. For, for understanding what your solution might be.
1: Yeah, sure. By the way, I just want to note that the bio summary did exactly take three minutes. So I'm
0: Congratulations. Kind of of We're very grateful.
1: So, yeah, so the 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 thesis of the book, as you stated, is exactly right, that Americans, or the Anglo-American tradition in general, is used to thinking of coercion as only what government does. And, of course, governance, governments can be coercive, and they can be unjustly coercive as to rising to the level of tyranny but there's also uh, i argue and show a great deal of coercion that envelops americans in the in the marketplace in what we call the private sector and precisely because our both our kind of prevailing economic ideology and our legal regime treats this zone of life as quote unquote private The coercion we face there is sort of immured from political challenge, from legal challenge precisely because it's private. And so that's given rise to what I characterize as a system of private tyranny. So to give just a few examples drawn from the book, you know, I talk about uh, what's called scheduling precarity by sociologists or economists of labor. What that means is that in service, especially service and retail industries, which are you know, a a good 10th of the employed American labor force works in these industries. Firms increasingly use unpredictable scheduling so that workers, a third of the workers in the service industry don't know what their schedule is a week ahead. And then when they do get shifts, they often get canceled last minute. Or they're asked to do what are called clopening shifts, where they show up for the first two hours of the store opening in the last two hours and then in between they're supposed to go home the problem with that is that this obviously makes a hash of the rest of your life if you have elder care child care you have no sense of regularity about your life but the reason it's done is this is a way to shift all the downsides associated with periods of low demand in labor retail and restaurant industry onto workers if you have a more regular schedule that everyone knows hey you come in at nights you know every night from four to nine whatever Then if there are periods of low demand, both the employer and the employee bear the cost of that when customers aren't coming in. But in order to maximize profits and minimize labor expenses, firms now this kind of algorithmic scheduling. What what that results in is, you know, workers who are subjected to this kind of scheduling report sleeping poorly, being uh, constantly harried, feeling depressed, feeling feelings of guilt, and their children are more likely to act out in school to misbehave, to report feelings of anxiety, and so on and the causal connection isn't hard to to sort of link up because when parents aren't able to spend any regular time with kids, those kids will tend to have poor outcomes and so my argument and being a man of the right, my argument with the right is conservatives tend to decry these kind of cultural and social phenomena. Oh, kids are alienated. Oh, kids are more and more misbehaving. But they don't link up or connect that nexus between how we organize our economy, our labor market, and how coercive that can be. Perfectly legal, by the way, what that might be doing to things like family, culture, etc. Tell
0: us also about you're with when you join a company and you're you, you're in your first day and you go to HR and they ask you to sign all these forms. There was a South Park episode once I can I remember when you signed the bottom of the Apple agreement. <laughs> uh, and
1: you became a human centipede, centipede,
0: yes, and you had no idea that you had consented to have to eat eat cuttlefish. If you remember, anyway, it was. It was a, I'm glad you know it. It was a great episode. But these things that you have to sign in order to 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 be employed, you suddenly discover oh i can't i can't i can't criticize the company if I leave. I have to allow my cell phone if I use it with a work uh, address or in in some way can be looked at by my bosses and so it's, it, it, elucidate that yeah. a little bit for us
1: yeah, sure so typically when you take a new job, there is an employment agreement. And that what that the form that that will take is you get an email from the employer saying great you've been chosen you've gone through two rounds of interviews and a drug check and a background check da 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 accept the job and typically you, most people will say yes happy to move etc and you've moved across the country potentially or at least across your city you've uprooted your spouse you've taken out a new lease on a car or a vehicle or a or a house or what have you bought a house. And then on your first day, you show up and there's this massive pile of papers put before you, which, by the way, they, most employers make clear is not your employment agreement. It's not the employment contract. It's like the guidelines. And The reason for that is that you, you don't have a contract. Most jobs in the United States in the private economy are at will. Nevertheless, you're bound by these other documents. And most people sign all of it, and you can't blame them because you've already, like I said, you've moved across the country, you bought a new house, you bought a new vehicle, etc. At that point, your bargaining power is very little, and most people sign them. And so I go through typical provisions, you know, I mean, you have non-disclosure, so you're barred from, okay, you have non-disclosure barred from disclosing anything about your work, but sometimes that can be really expansive, including, uh, you know, you may be gagged for reporting real wrong, wrongdoings by your employer. There is uh, the acceptable use policy, which you mentioned, which the company encourages you to use, use your personal devices, but the proviso is that they can confiscate your personal device if you've used it to access company networks. You typically expose yourself to pretty much total surveillance of your online activities. Even if you use your cell phone as a low-level, let's say, a delivery driver to go to the cafeteria, you use a QR code to buy food from the company cafeteria. You've used their network, and therefore that device is subject to your browsing history being searched, the device itself being confiscated. And one provision that most people may not notice, but it's becoming very common, is that you relinquish your pers- your voice, your persona, your singing voice, everything to do with who you are, audio-visually, you visually. Typ- you typically relinquish your rights to that. Now, back in the day, in a more innocent time, they did that because the employer wanted to use your picture for um, brochures or the training videos. But these days, as I show in the book, often the the that provision of the contract, no, I shouldn't say the contract, or whatever the documents you sign, whatever the company calls them, is specifically co- for commercial purposes. That is, you agree to let the company then subsequently license your persona, your singing voice, your audiovisual being in the world to other entities for commercial purposes. And that's
0: that's and, partly what's going on with the strike in Hollywood right now, right? Because these...
1: Yeah, absolutely. But you can be an office worker and you'd be similarly have that persona taken from you and then you you agree not to pursue any causes of action for harassment or loss of privacy or what have you either against the company itself your employer or any entity that you that subsequently buys that material because there's a huge amount there's a massive market for human likeness data as ai spreads and we try you know companies try to train how to predict human behavior and how to make mimic human voice, et cetera. Apple is buying up enormous amounts of data like that. Google is as well. So just to go back to the kind of, again, the idea of the free market Republican thinking about how the employment agreement is formed, in theory, the idea is that employer and employee have a symmetrical right to walk away from each other. And that means that their agreement, the agreements they form are optimal, and are best not interfered with by any external entity. But again, that just assumes a kind of labor market that maybe hasn't existed since the late 18th century. Ever since the industrial era, you've had this vast disparity in bargaining power between workers and employers, one, because there's many more workers than there are employers in a typical market, and because workers have this fundamental dependence on the employer in a way that's not the case the other way around even adam smith recognized this in book three of wealth of nations he says and i slightly paraphrase you know it's true that they both need each other but the employer can typically sustain himself for up to a year on the stocks or the profit that he's made from the company whereas the employee can scarcely go beyond a week before needing a job yeah i i I disparity. I think
0: the even Adam Smith is a little off. Uh, Adam Smith was a, a, a big believer in government regulation of markets um, and unions
1: in a way, in, insofar in as such a thing, he he theoretically predicted kind of collective bargaining on the part of workers. I'm
0: gonna I'm gonna come back to these and and challenge you on a few of them, but I just first of all want to get the the the, the broader picture. The other mm-hmm. thing that I think is very hard for most of us to understand because they're not financially that sophisticated, or we are math challenged, or is the way hedge funds buy up industries or buy up in the particular example you take is of newspapers, newspaper chains. And instead of, as is traditional, to try and actually invest in the company to try and save it, even especially if it's in a, a terrible state, they will essentially cut costs massively, and then sell off assets and essentially kill it off while making, by maximizing the value left in it, as opposed to attempting somehow to reinvest and rebuild in a, in, in a hostile economic environment. How do hedge funds and equity funds do this to regular companies? I mean, like, and how did they get to the point where they could control so many American companies, so many enterprises in, in the United States?
1: Yeah. So today there are more Americans who work for private equity owned companies than do for the U.S. government and the U.S. armed forces combined. U.S. government and U.S. armed forces in total are about 4.5 million employees, if you think of the army and the military as, as employees, whereas uh, private equity controls companies that in total employ about 9 million people and rising. The total assets under management has ballooned for private equity from like a billion dollars in the 1970s when this form came about of, of, of ownership to, depending on whom you ask, like trillions of dollars.
0: What's wrong with, with groups raising lots of money to invest in individual companies and doing so sure. on you know, rather rational economic grounds and attempting to maximize profits in, in, in the process?
1: Yep. So let's talk about how a normal corporation works, and then we'll see the difference with private equity. So a normal corporation, you know, you Andrew, have you've developed a, I don't know, a kind of mosquito repellent that's a new way to repel mosquitoes, unknown to humankind before. It uses ultrasound or something, whatever. Let's say. So you have this idea. You go to a, a bank or other financial institution. You borrow money. Oh, the mosquito repellent is a hit. And it starts to, you know, you, you start making profits. And so what you do is you be, you return some of the investor's money every every year or what have you back to them, whether uh, through dividends or through interest on a loan. And that's perfectly fine because they took a risk on your business. And so they're, they're entitled to some reward for the risk they took. But then you you have enough other money that you may after taxes and, and uh, depreciation and so forth but you reinvest in the business knowing that in order for your company to grow, you need to reinvest in, in the company because capital stock depreciates, your buildings wear down, your people, you need to hire more people, so on and so forth. That's how most companies work in the sort of imagination of the American people. And up until not too long ago, it really was how companies, the Amer- the typical American corporation worked. But over the past generation or so, what the American corporation actually does is every year it returns most of what it makes in profits after taxes and and so forth. It returns it all to shareholders. So what that happens when they do that is they erode their capital stock. Right. They're not reinvesting anything in the business. And so about half of American corporations, publicly traded corporations, if you judge them by their inv- investment behavior, they would be called this kind of eroder company rather than. But why a would it be in
0: their interest to erode companies that they own or are investing in? Why why would they not attempt to? So
1: this is this phenomenon of corporate erosion is heavily driven by Wall Street. The reason it's in their interest is because they they think about. What to do with a corporation solely on the basis of cash flow? They manage for cash flow, which means they want to extract as much cash <laughs> as possible out of the business. So they short call term, it, you
0: know, is what we're talking yeah, about. They we'll have to get money back to the shareholders it, that year.
1: Absolutely right. So the, the the problem with that is so a typical let's say private equity company invests in ten businesses. And it squeezes cash out of all of them. By the way, as part of the process of buying, they also load the company up with debt. They lever up in order to to buy the company. And let's say out of the 10 that they manage in this way, nine go out of business. And in fact, ownership by private equity, we know, dramatically increases the likelihood of bankruptcy. But if only one of them does super well, then it's all a wash and they, they end up working out just fine for them. The problem is that the typical worker or typical community can't make a similar bet. So it's not like, you know, you as an employee, you think, well, I'll take 10 jobs and one of them may work out. And so the other nine that I lose will be a wash. And so their risk profile that works for private equity doesn't work for ordinary people or for for communities that, for example, rely on one big company that was the, you know, the town firm. It's the one, the main company that employed everyone. So that's. That's typically what what's problematic about private equity in certain cases it becomes really catastrophic. So I tell stories in the book about private equity buying up firefighting companies or buying up emergency services companies. And so the same problems that you know took place when a hedge fund took over Sears and drove it to the ground are much more catastrophic when you're dealing with firefighting and emergency services because people's lives are at stake. Likewise, with newspapers, you know, typically what private equity and hedge funds do when they buy newspapers, they manage for cash flow. So it's not they don't completely kill off the newspaper, but they lay off like 70 percent of the reporters and editors. They um, lease much of the real estate, which is often quite valuable in downtown cores. And, and then what's remained is, is this ghost paper that just publishes national copy. What that means is they put in syndicated stories that they can put in all of the newspapers they own in a chain, regardless of what's happening in the local area. So why is that bad? It's because, well, people, first of all, lose knowledge of what's happening around them. You know, newspapers keep, keep local officials accountable. They, you know, when there's a newspaper, the likelihood of all sorts of corruption is typically lower, et cetera. It also alienates people because you're constantly only reading about, you know, Trump versus Biden. That's the only kind of news re- that you, you encounter rather than kind of the nitty gritty of what it's like to be in a civic community. Like what's happening with the garbage? What's happening with our schools? What's happening with the environment locally? So in that case, the private equity hedge fund model of ownership harms democracy and, and, and harms an institution that our founding fathers was so thought was so important, they not only kind of created an amendment to protect its freedom from censorship, but also took steps through the kind of postal service to subsidize the circulation of mails. So that's how important the founding fathers thought, you know, local print newspapers were and magazines, Of course, but they're under attack from from capitalism. The other
0: side of this uh, that you don't really deal with in the book is Mm -hmm. that workers are also consumers. So they are also part of a, a world in which these these processes that you're talking about, which are designed primarily to increase profits and to sustain profitability, and, and thereby to also keep rel- prices their own costs low. I mean, the reason why restaurants are doing preca- precarious scheduling is because they want to save money so that they can keep their so they don't have to raise their prices. So there, this is is it, if 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 you if you take the consumer out of this entire question. It's very hard to you, you. You're getting a slightly one-sided view of the costs and benefits of profit-driven capitalism, right? I mean, we could say, for example, that free trade has done some terrible damage to individual towns, companies, regions, industries, even, and yet we easily forget at the same time that the cost of clothing, for example, in, in America has is nothing compared to what it used to be. That the that the The plenitude of consumer goods is far greater than it ever used to be. That that the variety of restaurants and cafes and places you can go to are enormous and and constantly growing. Isn't there a case for saying that some of this, that is clearly a burden for workers, is also a benefit for them as consumers and that somewhere along the line, there's a wash here?
1: Mm -hmm. So several points in response to that it's a very common argument that okay you know we've empowered wall street and empowered industry to ship jobs or otherwise you know use labor arbitrage to drive down the cost of wages but uh, at least workers have benefited as as consumers there are, there are several answers to that the first is there are all sorts of cases in which you can have a higher wage economy Without resulting in higher prices, right? So, yeah, the higher wages could come out of existing profits um, that still allow, you know, kind of managers and shareholders a fair return. But because of labor-saving technology, you can have the same or fewer, uh, better-paid workers than we do now. So that's one answer. the The other one is, the, but you know, there's but this assumption- that's not something that th- that's yeah. something that's always going to happen if
0: you're a restaurant. And you're sticking yeah. to the schedules that you would like to s- stick to and in which you employ people for the same hours every day, regularly, whether there's demand or not. And your next door a restaurant that is operating on a much leaner, meaner, as it were, scheduling process, you will you will lose in the free market to the place that is saving more money, able to uh, keep its prices low, able to adjust and stay in business better than the others. How do you, how do you, how do you counteract that argument?
1: Well, I mean, first of all, what we have to recognize is when you're dealing with the very low wage industries, right? When you're dealing with the working poor, these are, let's say, the the bottom third of the labor force who are, you know, living paycheck to paycheck and so on, the argument that you know, but for these low wages, they couldn't afford the services they themselves produce, doesn't make sense because they already can't afford the services that they them- themselves produce, right? What are the lowest wage industries? It's waiters and waitresses. This is, I'm citing a Georgetown study. It's cooks, it's customer sales representatives, personal care aides, you know, stock material movers, etc., etc. The assumption that all of these workers wouldn't be able to, Afford their own the the the, you know the general kind of pool of products and services that they produce, but for the fact that they're low low paid is wrong because already they can't typically afford their own the services that they that they themselves provide because of low wages. My point is simply they
0: could lose their job entirely if the company that they're working for acts ethically in the way that you you and there is a question of ethics here. Providing solid stable. Secure wages and hours and so that makes them much worse off than not having even a job that is that is that is poorly paid or or that is paid well but very difficult to to
1: predict. I mean what what we're doing right now is not allowing and we're not empowering them as as consumers. What we're doing is we're subsidizing the low wages paid to them by private sector employees. Employ- employers i apologize through welfare benefits right so we right now have a model of a of an economy which i think is the worst kind possible it's it's a low wage high benefit society as my my friend michael Lynn describes it what that means is not that the benefits are really quite generous they in fact they can be quite miserly they're sort of means tested etc you can you know you have to sort of add up your various coupons to be able to make ends meet. What what it does mean, though, is that out of the sort of total amount of subsistence level um, salary that ordinary uh, workers in these industries need to make ends meet, a large share, up to half, is provided by the taxpayer, essentially through public welfare. And so half of fast food workers today have to rely on welfare in order to make ends meet a quarter of college adjunct teachers, like part-time college teachers have to use welfare to make ends meet. So
0: are you you proposing instead a a law, for example, that would raise the minimum wage or a law that would restrict employers from being able to be flexible enough in their schedules to save money?
1: So in, in, in industries where, uh, it's very hard to organize workers namely service and we just happen to have built a service heavy economy you know since since the neoliberal era we can get into that roughly since the 1980s we've shifted a lot of workers toward these kinds of service uh, low wage service industries in those industries i think a a wage floor does make sense and you know i i'm not foolish enough to say that there's not going to be any trade offs in terms of potentially higher price. So a minimum
0: wage is what, a, a yeah, higher minimum yeah, wage. Yeah, a higher
1: wage. But in many, many even other Even at the industry, expense
0: of potentially higher unemployment. Fewer opportunities well, I, for, for people to, to find work.
1: Again, I see, but, well, hold on. The other half of what I would do, which doesn't involve this particular industry, but many, many other industries, is to have, a more unionized labor labor. Okay, force. Let, well, let's um, get to
0: unions yeah. later. But I'm just trying to okay. wonder how. Well, no, how, for example, I, 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 you tell a restaurant industry. owner you can't you you pass a law telling them the hours that they must commit for their workers and and they they're not allowed to have flexibility. This is this is a way of getting around coercion.
1: Sure, and there's so I mean there's, you, the there's state is coercing
0: the business. In it's in its conduct for the benefit of the workers is what you're saying
1: well and and also i mean what i just pointed out and i think then you have to agree is that it's not like what the employer does to the employee is not a form of coercion right and so in other words in a, even in a market system coercion is an unavoidable reality yeah, this, and so what I, I'm this is,
0: is like, this is this is the core of my disagreement in this book because it it conflates to it does a lot of work is done in the book with that word coercion. And to me, it's, there's a, a lot of rhetorical sleight of hand in that. Now, co- you, def- you tell me what you mean by coercion. I know what I understand by coercion. A coercion to me is somebody being forced by threat of violence, essentially, to do something they may not want to do. And you are saying that, you know, free market society, if you pick, if you choose a job that is not good for you that, will, that, that, that you are being coerced into that how are you being coerced yeah. into choosing a job that may may not be optimal for you
1: well the the, the you know coercion needn't always take the form of you know a, a thug with a with a with a truncheon hitting you across the head although that's a form of coercion as well power of which coercion is an extension power takes many forms as as, as John Kenneth Galbraith taught, taught. One is what he called, you know, condign power. That is the power of the truncheon across your face. Okay, you know, that's the state at its most kind of brutal imprisonment. form. Sure, imprisonment. Sure. moving your
0: but, liberty. Another yes, obvious yes, form of, of coercion. Also,
1: there is also compensatory coercion. That's a power that you wield over someone else because you control their ability to make a livelihood or not. And so if... If the typical market... Now, hold on a minute. Um,
0: you you, you yeah. can't grab someone off the street and force them to work for you.
1: Right, but that person also, because of the law of property, can't just take any apples that he runs by without committing theft. Now, I think it's troublesome that in some democratic-run cities, that's become the norm that's possible. Well, we typically don't want them to do that, and we have you know laws against theft for good reason. And so if you have, if the typical industry... Which is this is true of most industries since the industrial revolution, if the typical industry is dominated by a few buyers or a few. Oh, hold sellers, on! Now
0: you're shifting. The, now you're shifting the goalposts again. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously, monopoly power is something that is something that capitalists, neoliberals have always, or liberals have always been yeah. concerned with. The cry, because it but I'm not is a about, problem. I'm not
1: talking about. Mon- I'm not talking about monopoly. I'm talking about the problem of oligopoly, which is slightly different. It's not well, one seller or one buyer. But that's what it's antitrust of-
0: stuff is supposed to do. It's supposed to sus- make sure that individual entities, firms, companies do not dominate a market in such a way that there is. But even then, Zorav, it's not yeah. co- the company does not have power over you the way a government has power over you, has the uh, monopoly of violence against you. I uh, can put you in jail if you don't agree to certain right. things. It just I, doesn't. And to use I mean, use I, 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 the same it, word is uh-huh. is a, is flimflam. Well, I mean you can make I, an argument I, without yeah. without you could make an argument I think you've made a pretty good argument about some yeah. of the abuses in the system that have Im- emerged. These things will happen and there are things that we can do to ameliorate those things. The minimum wage, for example, might be one thing. It's going to have some costs or whatever. Or we could we could well let's take let's take your your rather lovely example of the Sabbath, where this was this was a rule where you couldn't work on a Sunday, allowed regular human beings without much economic power to have a day of rest, et cetera, et cetera. You'd like to return to that, right? Sure, so you yeah. would like the yeah. government to force people not to work when they want to work or if they want mm-hmm. to work. Mm -hmm. And you're claiming that you will reduce the level of
1: coercion in society when you do that? Yes, because the labor movement fought with, you know, alongside Christians, typically, you know, Protestant Christians. I'm Catholic, but typically alongside Protestants in the early 20th century to, especially to expand the Sabbatarian laws or Sabbatarian tradition to the U.S. Postal Service, which prior through the 19th century, had not, you know, we had the Sabbatarian laws in, you know, at the town level, at the state level across the country, but not the U.S. Postal Service. And that was, this was something that was a great ire of, you know, evangelical Christians, but they couldn't succeed to stop Sunday mail delivery until you had a nascent labor movement. Now, why did the labor movement fight in general for a day of rest, essentially? Now, in this case, we're talking about the Sabbath, but more generally, they fought for the idea that human beings shouldn't have to, you know, work one day a week. I mean, these are all the sort of reforms that came about in the early 20th century. But human beings 17th. Should not
0: have the choice to work on that day is what you're saying. No one's forced yes, to do because,
1: so. Precisely because of the sort of power disparity, there we go. That exists. Thank you. If so we got power disparity, we're now we're now. Well no but that power disparity cashes out at coercion because if you have again you have many many workers and far fewer employers the employers can dictate to those many employees you know to to work as much as the employer wants and that we don't want that and so we we intervene and say hey that's that's a co- that's a coercive use of the employer's power market power we recognize that and so we You know, we use state intervention and also, you know, civil society power. That's what collective bargaining is, that combination to limit that. But one way or another, the point is not that coercion will ever be banished from society, but to recognize that economic relationships are also contoured by coercion. And if that's the case, then we should try to to ameliorate that effect or to try to subject it to greater kind of public democratic contestation or something and that's what we did in the kind of New Deal era, right? It was this. The New Deal was a recognition that most markets after the Industrial Revolution are characterized by these power disparities that allow one side of the market to coerce the other. So, what do we did? And what, what did FDR do in response to that? He, you know, made it easier to for workers to unionize, so that it's not me individually going up against alongside competing with 10,000 other workers, and we're all trying to claw past each other. And so therefore, we're, we're all willing to work for less, um, which is the kind of reductio ad absurdum of pure competitive classical economic theory. But rather, if we can join together, we can put counter pressure on the buyers of labor, employers, and secure for ourselves better wages, better you know, working conditions, health benefits and so on and so forth. That was the main thing that that the new deal did but it's it's you know premised on this recognition that economic relationships are kind of structured by power relationships.
0: What do you And power what imbalance. What do you think of the term structural violence? I mean what what I which is really what you're describing right because you use the term coercion which really yeah. for most people means the exercise of force in the way that the, the woke left used the term violence.
1: Yeah, to me, hold on
0: a minute, let higher. me finish my point because I do yeah. think you echo them in so many ways in, in neo-Marxist mm-hmm. terminology. That For you, America is, a, is really everything is about coercion. Every interaction mm-hmm. is about coercion. Hi there. Power this is not the end of this podcast. In fact, we're only just getting going. If you're a paid subscriber and are hearing this, it means you haven't yet signed up for the full new package to get our podcast in full. No extra charge. Just go to andrewsullivan.substack.com forward slash listen, L-I-S-T-E-N, and make sure your podcast is up to date with the DishCast. You'll be able to add it to your DishCast feed and never have this, hear this message again and go back to exactly what you've been doing for the last two years. And I'd like to thank you too for contributing for so long. If you're hearing this message and you haven't yet subscribed and want to listen to the rest of the podcast, then just subscribe. It's very easy. Andrewsullivan.sobstack.com is 50 bucks a year. Great value for money. And you also get with that the entire weekly dish every Friday, not just my weekly column, but also all the comments and dissents on that column. You also have a full discussion of the previous week's DishCast. So all those questions you had in your mind can be answered or you can hear and read readers debating what we talked about, sometimes uh, calling me to account. andrewsullivan.substack.com Subscribe and get the whole thing. Join the debate. Join the fun. Subscribe.